Hello, my name is Steve Salaman. I'm one of the lead developers of the new Habitat project, and you're listening to the Scene World Podcast. Hey, it's the Scene World. Ah, I just hit my microphone. Hey, it's the Scene World Podcast. That's our new theme music that's still playing. Uh, I don't know if we've addressed this in the podcast, but we have new theme music. Oh, we addressed that many times. Did we address before. that? I thought I didn't. I don't remember addressing that. My mind is so gone. Nobody realizes that that we're we're doing this so much now that I don't even know what's going on anymore. I mean, I mean, we started this in the new year. Yes. I mean, this is why I wanted to have this ready right. Right. by January, yeah. so we can start with the new year. So, mm-hmm. from the first podcast and YouTube video on this year, we have this music, which right. is like yeah. eight months ago already. Oh, so I know. I know. But I, I wasn't sure if we actually talked about it. If we said, like, hey, let's have new music. Well, it's by Martin, uh, our good friend, Altraz. Yeah, exactly. So, well, of course we addressed it. Yes. Um, so um, in a second, we are talking to Randy Farmer. This is the second part, a follow-up interview. about uh, A couple years ago, we talked about uh, Neohabitat, the Neohabitat project yeah. with Steve Salivan. And we'll put a link to exactly that Exactly two years below. ago, July uh, 2018. Yeah. So we uh, uh, we'll put a link to that down below, so you guys can check it out if you want. Um, and this time we're talking to the guy that pretty much designed the game, uh, Randy Farmer, uh, and we're going to talk to him all about um, his his part in Habitat and Neo Habitat yeah. and 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 that. Yeah, and, yeah. and you should also check out um, Jurg did a pioneer a vintage pioneer interview with him, which will be coming out shortly, or maybe coming out at the same time as this. I, I don't know. It depends on how. He's editing Probably. that. I'm editing Probably. this. It's it's yeah. it's a it's a. It depends on how how fast each of us are. You may be waiting yes. on me. <laughs> and the thing is, um, you were also with it. Yes, I was. Time. Yes. So everyone should check that out when it comes out. If it's not out already, and yeah, um, yes. Before that, however, there is a little bit of news, I guess, that we can address. Not, yes. not too much. Yes. So the Commodore Retro Expo that happens between August 28th and 30th will be ritual this year. Yeah. And is doing a um, music showcase using Commodores during CRX called Bitscape Las Vegas. More okay. info will be posted at crxevent.com. Okay, cool. Um, I've got one here that is not, I mean, I guess it's vintage now. Um, so classic Mac OS being Mac OS 8.1 in this particular example, which is from 1997, um, mm-hmm. has been released, uh, some guy, um, Felix Reis- Reisberg, uh, he's a, he, uh, he works for Slack. He's a developer. He has released a standalone app which runs vintage Mac OS 8 from 1997. So if you feel like going back to those days, you, there's an app where you can actually do that. Um, I personally, I love the uh, vintage, the, the classic Mac OS. I do not want to go back to those days because everything that we did was like pulling teeth, trying to get freaking anything to work. I don't know if you remember this, Jurg. 
sure. Trying to get video stuff to work, trying to get audio sure. to work on, on apps that didn't exist for classic sure. Mac OS. Sure. I had to well, develop my... From Mac, but that was horrible. It was outdated. horrible. It was terrible. I had to develop my. I had to make my own MSN Messenger client because the ones that were available for Mac sucked. It was. It was. Oh, it was rough. And there was Skype. Like, yes. I can't see you. Well, no, and Skype. I can't hear you. Skype never existed on classic Mac OS. Okay. Skype was Mac OS 10 or Mac OS X okay. only. So. Ah, which is interesting because I think the first Mac version came out too. A uh, two oh four. If I'm not mistaken. What's that? Two oh four, two thousand four. Uh, the first Mac OS ten. I think it was earlier than that. I mean, the first Mac version of Skype. Oh, oh, oh Mac version of Skype. Pro, uh, whew. That might, yeah. Is it that early? Yeah. Or that late, and, rather. And, uh, and the the Windows version was released in two thousand three. And the Mac version was one year later. Okay. I'm pretty sure about that. Because I was among one of the first um, Skype users okay. that was released for Windows. And I remember um, that um, a year later, I, I Skyped with somebody that had a Mac um, that was the co-admin of the CSDB. Okay. Okay. Well, so the first, yeah. uh, the first, um, the first version of Mac OS X or X or whatever, whatever the hell you call it was released in uh, two thousand one. Classic Mac OS was was released. The newest release of that was nineteen ninety nine. And now nowadays, as as it's all the same same platform, all the same software. Yeah. If you look at Wikipedia, you can see. The last version released eight days ago on the um, 3rd of August, and they all have the same version, 863076 for yeah. macOS, Linux, Android, iOS, and Windows. Yeah. The exact same version. Yep. And this is um, what we talked about a lot. Uh, that is why we don't understand that people say Skype is a thing of the past. It's the same software on all platforms, and it's released all on the same day yes and it's really just working yeah 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 it does we, we like Skype a lot yeah um, but yeah so that's that's the thing you can do if you want to go back and relive your your classic Mac OS days it is available nice. um, I'll put a link to where you can get it I, I like the classic Mac OS I used it for a long time I was very good at modifying it and making it work with newer stuff um, but nice. at this point it's like I'm, I'm so used to Mac OS. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Skype and all these other apps that are like, you know, because right now the architecture is the same. It's Intel. You know, it's I, I've got a, a, an i7. You, you know, you've got a whatever. It's all Intel. You but, know. but didn't announce yeah, Apple that's what I'm, this year they are going to have their that's own, what I'm, own That's what CPUs? I'm getting at. That's what I'm getting at is that Apple's going to be transitioning again because, you know, it, back in the day they were on, power, they were on mm. uh, 68K chips like, you know, like your classic Amiga. Mm. Uh, up mm. until the 040, and then they went to the PowerPC chip, which was a good chip, but the heat dissipation on it was terrible. Mm. And then they switched over to Intel, and that's where they've been for quite a bit now. Uh, and now we're switching to um, Apple's own yeah. silicon, which is ARM-based, but yeah. it's not really yeah. ARM because everyone yeah. keeps saying it's Mac, it's it's an ARM chipset, but it's not because mm. 
Mac or Apple licensed the the ARM like architecture, but they've modified mm. it to be their own thing. You know what this means for Intel? They are losing their second big market. Mm -hmm. The first big market was the gamer PC yes, market. Yeah. But with the Ryzen, AMD totally got a more powerful CPU for yeah. less money yeah. on a modern, more modern architecture than than Intel. And now they are losing the Mac Apple world too. Yeah. That means, oh my God! I'll be interested to see how this works because you know, I mean, it's it's, you know, we're so used to, we're so used to the 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 elements that we have right now. You know, the Intel processors mm. and whatever you know graphics cards you can get and whatnot. Mm. You know, for, for performance. But looking at something like this, this is something we haven't seen this kind of architecture in a desktop machine or a laptop before. You know, but looking looking at the things going in the IT world, I mean, we had the same happening with IBM yes. a few years ago, where they said like, "Oh, we are stopping doing servers. Okay, we are going to give that to Lenovo. Oh, yeah. we are going to stop making laptops. We are giving that to Lenovo." Yep. Which is now thanks to thanks to buying all that all that series from IBM. Which is one of the most used um, brands for laptops and servers mm -hmm. worldwide, despite they are Chinese. Yeah. So uh, amazing. And um, the same happened with Sony, that Vario line yes. that they sold to Japan and is now its own brand for high end workstation right, right. Um, PC uh, laptops that still feature a VGA. Yeah. Connector, because yeah. there are like in architecture bureaus and such things, mm -hmm. you still have to have a VGA adapter. Yeah. But you need a powerful computer. In yeah. we are talking here about the price range of between four thousand and eight thousand dollars for a laptop. Yeah. Right. Right. For like That's really beast workstations. Yeah. And they still have Blu-ray drives. They still have VGA adapters. So that's totally a niche. Yeah. So it's not. It's not. Uh, but the difference here is IBM and Sony decided to sell those, those product lines, and for Intel's case, they are losing them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, it, it, so, but it'll be really interesting to see like what the performance is on this. If we actually gain performance over Intel and what game developers do, because right now. A lot of game developers for the Mac, they just kind of, they wrapped their their Windows version in like a wine shell. So you're running, you know, it, it, it's, so it runs on Mac, but it's really still just running on Windows. Um, so it'll be interesting okay. to see what they do, because there is an emulator that they're including, Rosetta, that will translate to Intel, but it's not that quick. And, and it's not... It's not going to be there for very long, I don't think. If if we go by how they did it, it's Rosetta two. They did Rosetta one from PowerPC to to Intel. That didn't last that long. I think they got rid of that in like ten point five mm. or ten point six. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, it was ten point six. So um, yeah, so we'll see how that works. Uh, it'll be interesting. I'm still going to hang on to my elderly old laptop, which is hang hanging out doing this. As long thing. as long as you can. Yes, it's 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 such a nice laptop. I love this thing. Okay. Well, so <laughs> let's head over to um, yeah. 
That's about Randy it. Farmer. Randy Farmer is there waiting, so let's go talk to him. Pachow. So, uh, today we are talking to Randy Farmer. Hello, Randy. Nice Hello. to have you in the show. Um, actually, we were supposed to talk to you two, two years ago already with uh, Steve Sullivan about the Nero Habitat, but you, we were told back in the day that you were sick and you couldn't join us. So uh, I, That was probably when I was out having heart surgery, so yeah. Oh, oh okay. Well, that, that, okay. that is a good reason. <laughs> yeah, because I didn't know anything about this. So it's like, oh, okay. I think I think it was appropriate. I was focusing on what I was focusing on. Yeah. yeah. yeah well, that's a, that's a good reason to not be here. But I'm glad to see that it was obviously successful. <laughs> uh, me, me too. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. It allowed me to refocus on some things I think that matter. Yeah. So. Good, good. Very happy well, to have uh, brought Habitat back. That was one of the great things that I've done before. I'm looking forward to doing more interesting things in the future. Hmm. Now, Habitat, yeah, yeah, Habitat is one of those things that that I I love this, and and it, I feel like it needs more attention drawn to it because there's quite a few people that that call BBSs and and do all that stuff through their their old machines, um, but. Things like like Neo Habitat and and Q Link Reloaded and um, um, Thomas Cherry Holmes has Play-Doh going. Uh, these things are are really interesting and, and different, and especially with Habitat because um, I got you know I was able to be on Q Link for a short time before it went down, and I used Club Carib for a little bit, which was sort of the neutered Habitat. So actually having Habitat back in its original glory is pretty cool as i understand it club creed uh so the history there is really interesting because uh one of the reasons we could restore uh habitat to its original status is the original client has never changed it is a game a multi-user game the first mmo the first virtual world graphical virtual world uh which has only one version of the client mm -hmm. um and all of the work was done and because of when it came out in the 1980s 1988 is when it was finally released under the name club Creed, it was so new that people couldn't figure out how to describe it there was no way to win this game and so i can say the first mmo or the first virtual world now like it's nothing those phrases didn't exist in 1988 right and so when we tried this they say how do you describe it in 25 words or less um, they couldn't get their minds around it at Quantum Link because you just you show up and you interact with other people in those virtual economies. The first virtual economy was scarce object. Uh, there's user housing, which wouldn't come to MMOs for, for more than a decade. Uh, we had that from the beginning. You know, you, you were born with a place to live, um, and uh, as we called attached. And so they couldn't wrap their minds around it. So we made a joke about uh, when they repositioned it. So Chip and I end up leave, leave, leaving Lucasfilm, forming a different company, going in a completely different direction, but still doing online stuff. Um, but they wanted to change it, and they came up with Club Creed, which I called Club Metaphor, because they were trying to grab onto a metaphor for describing how you would be places interacting with people with no single clear purpose or goal in mind. And they went, oh, that's kind of like going to a resort. 
And so what they did was they, they just literally shipped the same binary. I know because I did the work to replace the cover screen. Mm-hmm. So the original Habitat cover screen, those bits were literally replaced in a binary patch on the 1.0 release. And a string was changed um, uh, to say quantum link, quantum computer services instead of Lucas or something. I can't remember. There were two changes. There were binary. I literally binarily patched and pasted in some bits. And that's what they shipped. Uh, the back end was where all, because what's revolutionary about Habitat that people don't know about is not only does it do more on a Commodore 64 than any product before, as far as I know since, um, it also had the most advanced back end of any online service at the time because it had a fully realized virtual object system. Uh, and as a result, you could limit the capabilities that were exercised in the game by literally omitting classes that were still implemented. So what happened is over time, they kept reintroducing these weird things that we'd put in. So I don't know if when you were playing Club Creep, you ever became a tentacle. I did so not, we, no. we, we'd taken this artwork. Oh, so there was, we take this artwork, experimental artwork that they were doing at Lucasfilm Games. We were doing at Lucasfilm Games. We just tossed it in as alternate avatar types. So you can actually be a tentacle from uh, Maniac Mansion. <laughs> and uh, in fact, Neo Habitat, Neo Habitat has a wand that lets you do that. If you get the tentacle wand, you can turn people into tentacles with Neo Habitat. Because uh, we were experimenting with other avatar bodies. Um, uh, and we have a helicopter and a spider and all these weird things. So we're trying to figure out, it, it's so hard to explain what it was like before you knew how things worked, mm-hmm. right? And so we were trying to figure out would you turn into something to play the game piece or would you play with game pieces on a board? How much intelligence should you put in the board versus just giving people game pieces? Mine, mine have changed about that over the years. Um, but uh, the thing is a huge experiment in every way. And so you can see why Quantum Link might have been a little afraid uh, <laughs> to eat up, you know, take bite off the entire experimental. There's even combat and hit points in the thing. Right. We couldn't figure out, is it a comeback game? Is it a social? What's it going to be? And uh, right. and so it's all of those. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, by, by the end of Club Creep, almost everything that had been left out just got turned on. So they got, basically got upgrades by only turning on classes in the server, just introducing them to the world. A vending machine would have a new thing in it that they never saw before, and which we had developed four years before and was just sitting in the database waiting to be uh, have instances. Hmm. Hmm. It is super advanced, and there's there's stuff in there that that's still to this day kind of you know I I, I under you know when I was younger and, and actually used it on uh, on QLink um, you know I had an idea of how sprites work and how and how things interact and the amount of things you can have on screen and suddenly I go in here and there's you know fifteen people in one area picking up objects moving around and and my 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 mind was blown as a kid being like like how is this how are they doing this because in general q-link was not a very complicated system it may it didn't even have a, a a custom character set you know it was just pretty much just just text and that's about it and so seeing this thing suddenly you know just just blew my mind and how did that how did that come about how did you figure out, you know, you just said that it's got one of the most advanced backends, but I mean, even just the software itself, the, the front end of it is, is super advanced, even for today. It, it is. It, it, it is. Um, so uh, how much do I want to talk about? 
Uh, so first, let's talk about the sprites. This is a common mistake when people interpret Lucasfilm games. They think that Habitat and uh, Maniac Mansion are using the same rendering engine. And it couldn't be further than the truth. So Maniac Mansion uses remapped character sets so you can do the scrolling. Uh, if you know about Commodore 64 technology, I don't have to describe it all to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so everything that got drawn by the artist got put through an algorithm to try to crush it and, and reuse characters so they only have two individual characters. And then the characters are very narrow because they all have to fit in sprites and they're doing sprite multitasking on video blank intervals to try to get what they've got working. Everything about that is not how Habitat works. Habitat, we owned from the beginning that it, all the regions are going to be built dynamically out of objects, a completely different model. This is the first 3D virtual world. It just gets rendered with 2D objects. So we have a full renderer for all of the objects, including the avatars. They are rendered as first-class objects. Uh, Specifically, background objects are rendered uh, bottom to top. Let's see if I get this right. And the foreground is top to bottom or vice versa in such a way, and we only re-render the background when needed. So if someone like changes the color of the wall, we have to re-render the background. Mm-hmm. Only the foreground objects are redrawn. The background is drawn into a buffer, and then you do double buffering. Uh, so one of the interesting things is the Commodore 64 has 64K of memory, of which we allocate 30K to just handling the bitmap screens, because we keep two copies, um, because we have a double, double buffered uh, uh, I mean, a, a buffered rendering system because like it's a full 3D render in the sense that objects are positioned in space. So when something moves up the screen, we collapsed Y and Z so that it would clip behind an object. So when you walk in front of a sofa, you're mm-hmm. in front and behind. We're not doing any clipping. That's just back to front rendering. Um, yeah, back to front rendering the program. Um, there are sprites though, <laughs> two of them. One is the cursor mm-hmm. when you move it around. And when you push the button, it turns into different shapes to choose the command. So we have the first pie menu in a game that we know of. So that's a pie menu. It just doesn't look like a pie menu. Right. Those are very experimental at the time. And it's what we call the quip. I named that thing that hangs down from the word balloon to point to the user's head. Mm-hmm. That is also a sprite, the avatar set. And that needs to be a sprite because it goes across the uh, interrupt boundary where we switch from text mode, which is what the word balloons are in, uh, to uh, the rendered uh the bitmap mode. And so we needed a thing that made it look like that was all continuous. And that's it. That's the only sprites on the screen. Uh, in fact, we don't use much of the sprite technology at all. In fact, if you said, but unlike most apps, we're fully using the modem. We've remapped the disk drive. Just about, uh, I wrote the sound uh, driver and editor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so our sound effects is really compressed uh, proprietary format. We call it proprietary now that back then you just called it expeditious. You had to get something and you wanted it to be tiny. Uh, so 30K is dedicated to uh, the rendering. There's a 14K heap in which all the behaviors, art, and and sounds fit in and are dynamically loaded. So we had a dynamic memory mapping system, which I wrote, including heap garbage collection and all this stuff, stuff that no one talks about when you talk about Commodore 64 games. Uh, uh, and the rest is the code. Um, and, uh, but the code is dynamic in the sense that the things that load can run anywhere in memory. And uh, hmm. there's a funny story about how that broke things for a long time. 
uh, <laughs> we had a magic bug. What you, what you don't realize is because you have this dynamic memory manager and people walking in, uh, in and out of the regions, the screens that you're in, you can have a memory reorg, right? The map, the memory can be compressed and make room for the new objects when they come. When that happens, the code that might be waiting for a reply, like if you're taking money out of a bank and someone happens to enter the region at the same time, moves on the stack. It moves on the heap. And so when you do an RTS, when you do a jump back, when you go back, the code's not there anymore. <laughs> What's interesting is the 6502, I think it's 6510 that was in the Commodore 64. Yeah has a unique property. Every one of the 256 opcodes is a valid opcode, mm -hmm. which means there are no such things as errors. All memory is executable. And so this would lead to really bizarre bugs <laughs> because arbitrary <laughs> code would start running, uh, which is not code, by the way, arbitrary bitmaps or sound files or, or you know, sound effects or, right. or might be code. You might finish some other code that's <laughs> read, gonna read the response. <laughs> so a response would come in uh, over the network and it would go, here, <laughs> I've got the responses, woo! And random things would happen. We call this the granddaddy of all bugs um, because we had a whole class of, of really strange bugs. Uh, and then when we figured that out, we realized we're not, we shouldn't, you're not allowed in relocatable code to do a standard call. I had to rewrite a call. I'd rewrite call to have a, have a wrapper that would basically say what behavior it is in what object. And then when you do RTS, it goes to the call at that thing and it goes, wait, let me go find that code. <laughs> that code might not be where you think you are. Add the offset to get to the correct return point and then jump to that. Um, uh, so yeah, when I say it's the most exercised and, and most advanced code maybe of all time, but certainly uh, it's certainly until emulators came. Hmm. Um, it is because no one was doing self-relocating code and full 3D rendering on top of full networking. <laughs> uh, we broke Commodore chips. There's a story I've shared before with the uh, uh, Commodore developer community in Las Vegas, uh, one of the cons. Um, we, we, we found a bug in the VIC chip, an early version of the VIC chip, before, all versions before version C. Um, uh, we had originally, if you look at the promotional videos for Habitat, you'll see that the area where you type in the text mm -hmm. for your word balloon was below the avatars in the earliest version, in the alpha version. It's now above. Right. And the reason is having it below crashed computers. It crashed <laughs> computers when they got warm. Oh. So it would, they would run fine for a while until the computer started to warm up. It would cause a short in the chip, and it would it would seize the chip, and the whole application would seize, causing the screen to turn to typical Commodore sixty four garbage. Oh man! Uh, uh, and this was discovered for me when someone said, "Oh yeah, you've got this problem. You can't really have two interrupts on a screen like that because uh, the old chips do this." He goes, "A guy calls me. He goes, here, do this. Get a, get a can of Freon." And, and get yourself into a state where you have one of those computers. And he says, when it freezes, take the Freon and zap the VIC chip. And I did, and the program resumed. <laughs> wow. And uh, wow. we thought this was going to be, we thought, well, it's taken so long, it took us so long to get the application out. It took way too many years to ship. Um, long story about how that's even possible and why it didn't get killed. Um, but we thought by the time the, the white Commodore 64s came out, 
that and the 128, that this would all, you know, those chips would be worked through the pipeline and this we could put it back. Mm-hmm. Or we could do check and maybe put it back. Well, then we found out that 128 and 64Cs, I think they were called the, the, the later ones. Exactly. Uh, we're getting the old chips. You see, Commodore was so damn cheap, yeah, cheap, they would take their new chips and dump them in the same manufacturing bins with their old chips. Yep. <laughs> so that's why Habitat has that weird thing where early videos of its play show one thing, and then the later one mm. is what you have. Interesting. Yeah, well, especially the Wix ship is pretty special. I remember Bill Hurt, one of those um, former hardware engineers at Commodore, he once did a presentation and he said that the early C64 silver labels had actually a sparkle bug in the Wix ship. So you would have like um, small minuses over the screen in white and instead of Instead of removing the bug from the big ship, he said they implemented a routine in the later version of the of the big ship that would detect whenever a white sparkle would appear and and recolor it into the background color, though the user would never see it. Um, <laughs> and um, actually, I have one of those silver label C64, especially because I'm in Germany. They are pretty rare, you know. They are. 500 euros or more expensive, and I actually have one of those very early Vic ships with a sparkle bug. <laughs> so you constantly have those white stripes, little minuses, right. wandering over the um, mm. screen. And it really shocked me that Commodore released early versions with, with such a bug, but it, it appears they didn't notice in time and it was already shipped or something. That yeah. was so weird for me. Well, that was that was yeah. Commodore. Commodore was kind of a release it and we'll fix it later. Uh, yeah. So the uh, at the time, you know, when I was developing this, I was a young man, uh, and I was very excited about our products coming out on Commodore sixty four when I was working at Lucasfilm Games. And then I'd recommend my friends. And then this is when we discovered. So we knew a lot about what was going on because uh, Steve Arnold, who was head of Lucasfilm Games division, um, you know, was in contact with all the executives and stuff, because but Lucasfilm, Lucasfilm had an amazing amount of pull. And um, and he would find out all these things they were doing. It's like, oh wait, look, you save money on customer on on, on QA if you don't test the machine off the assembly line. They would mm-hmm. literally take them off the assembly line, put them in the box, and count on returns. Yeah. This was a nightmare. Toys R Us hated them. <laughs> it caused big trouble because what was happening is basically uh, the consumer was the QA department yeah. for Commodore 64 assembly for I don't remember how many years that was one or two. Um, yeah, it, the, they, they were obsessed with price. Yeah. So that means you, you as a developer, in the end, had to find solutions for hardware issues. Commodore was yeah, causing. So- I got to tell you, when I sprayed that chip that day, the reason I know this story is I that broke my worldview. As a software <laughs> developer up to that moment, I thought, no, the platform is stable. All bugs are mine. It's like, oh, no. <laughs> the platform is not stable. Um, and fortunately, I think that, that age is mostly over. Uh, you don't hear about, well, I mean, the last big uh, Pentium bug I heard about was years and years ago, a decade ago, mm-hmm. maybe more. Um, 
the bu- you know the bugs that really matter uh, don't make it out. Yeah. <laughs> so what what led to the development of of Habitat as a as a um, as as a platform kind of because like you said this is a thing that never existed before so like how did that that come to be like what was the the development process behind that so that that story belongs to chip morningstar uh my partner in crime in fact he led the project uh at lucasome games and he did the initial design called lucasome universe um and he wrote about it extensively in our shared blog, Habitat Chronicles dot com. Mm-hmm. You just do a search for Habitat History, you'll find it. In and the details there, I don't want to don't want to try to retell it, mostly because it's his history and he has a way of telling it. Uh, but the short story I can tell is how I became involved. So mm-hmm. they were shopping. So there was a bunch of there was a confluence. AOL that was then called Quantum Link, right? Um, they were searching for something exciting to do for their network. Lucasfilm, because of Star Wars and Indiana Jones, had become this major media company. George Lucas hired Steve Arnold, who built the games, um, Lucasfilm Games, now known as LucasArts. Is it still called LucasArts? I don't know. And now that they've been bought, bought, bought by Disney. Yeah. But, um, but, they were the lost patrol. We were, we were always doing experiments. So we produced some amazing stuff, but you, I'm sure you've covered all of it already, uh, between ball blazer and rescue and fractalists. And I was, uh, the Apple II engineer on the port of, 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 um, Cronus Rift. Hmm. I did an Apple II version of Cronus Rift. So that's where I learned about how to render the impossible, um, real time fractals on a, <laughs> Apple II, uh, no sprites. I got really good at this. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, so there, there's this confluence of a lot of energy starting to focus on the idea of ongoing gameplay and Star Wars, right? And so that's where Chip starts. He starts in a story about what happens. So if, the only part of the story I'll tell is he was talking to Noah Falstein uh, creator of Cronus Rift and, and numerous other games, well known. Uh, he, they were talking about AI, and they realized that the conversation went to, well, we're never going to be able to create a good enough AI to seem like a human. So why don't we just see what happens if we plug humans together? And that ends up being Chip's impetus for writing the Lucasfilm universe. Hmm. Um, uh, while I was there working on Cronus Rift, doing the impossible, making a Apple II play real-time fractals with moving objects in colors that don't work together in the Apple palette. Um, I met him because I, I have made sure that when I was a contractor working on that, I was working at Skywalker Ranch. I wanted to be part of that division. So I started as a contractor. I spoke with him about work I'd done in my career building up to this. Uh, I built my first multiplayer game in the 1970s, a, a Star Trek combat simulator with dozens of people simultaneously connected, shooting at each other with starships, all in text. It was 3D, but it was text. No rendering. It was all coordinates and vectors uh, as long strings of numbers. Uh, and that game still exists today. The group who played that still exists today. We have a port 
the you know the ninth or tenth generation of that game. Really? We still play it on occasion. Yeah, usually just for holidays. A bunch of gray hairs <laughs> pretending to be admirals shooting at each other. But uh, that's when I discovered the power of people connecting to each other. So he had come to this idea, we need to do that. I was already kind of an expert in multiplayer uh, social dynamics. Not my entire career has been human social dynamics on computers. And he said, well, look, you've done this amazing thing with the Apple II, and you know about multiplayer games, and you're a big Dungeon Master guy. Uh, I want you on my project. Uh, and so that's how I ended up on that project. Um, he says it was the best decision he's ever made in his career. That's a quote. Um, uh, but it was, it was the perfect match uh, because I was... Uh, it, it, the reason this could happen is no one told us it couldn't. If you ask anyone today to build Habitat from scratch, no notes, no one would know how to build it, and they would be sure you couldn't. Yeah. Um, we didn't think we couldn't. <laughs> we didn't know we shouldn't. Uh, so we did. Um, and it's got, we, come on, a virtual memory manager to manage 14K of storage. <laughs> <laughs> well, no one was talking about virtual memory on tiny machines. That was a college thing. Those yeah. Big machines. And only the most kind of researchy guys were doing that. So Chip, when he hired me, handed me MIT's textbook. He said, here, read this. We're going to be um, Sussman and Ableton's algorithms. And whatever. I think I have a copy over here still. Um, and... Uh, so I read that it was it was mind opening, and I said, "We're going to do this." He said, "Yeah." I said, oh, this is going to be great. Um, so I ended up being the lead client engineer. I also wrote some of the back end code, some of the behavior for objects, because once you're writing the front end for behavior, sometimes the behavior is really easy to write on the back end. Um, and then uh, I also was the first oracle, the first person to actually kind of uh, administer the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was my specification that led to the. To, uh, goo God's handy utility, which is the, I wrote specs for chip to do things. Uh, one was to write uh, a tool where I could have a, a macro programming language for doing administrative tasks, like turning multiple pieces of habitat paper into a single bound object that could go into a vending machine. So we could do a newspaper or these kinds of things. Uh, I could reset the database. I could do all these things that are necessary to administer the world. Um, and I could, uh, get questions because the Oracle fountain at the center of town actually writes out to a log when you talk to it. That was a way to talk to the administrators. Um, yeah, all of that stuff. And so I became very, very close to it. Although it's Chips. If Chips the father, I'm the mother. And I'm the one who keeps nurturing it 40 years later. Um, and then that ran for till the mid-1990s and uh, Quantum Link goes away. Hmm. And then, not too long ago, about four or five years ago, I guess five, five, six years ago, uh, the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, uh, Alex Handy, uh, got it in his head to bring it back. And he did all the legwork to secure hmm. the right uh, hmm. to be able to, to run a server, uh, basically under the, under the auspices of the museum. Yeah, uh, let's... Let's talk about that. How did that happen? When, when, um, how did you reverse engineer and get that running again after so many years of being gone? And I, I don't know if those machines even it ran on a uh, a special machine that I, I think there's one left, and and you guys are running it now, right? 
I said no. Yes and no. Oh. So what you said is true and what you said is not true. Um, so <laughs> the plan, the plan was to see if we could get a hold of a Stratus mini computer is what, the, what it ran on. Right. Um, and Alex did secure one of those. In fact, uh, they scheduled a hack day, which there are photos of Chip and I assemble, uh, uh, attending, uh, where we got together with a bunch of local Oakland hackers and said, let's see if we can bring something up, minimally up. So we had the server. We had a copy of the code, which Chip had the rights to have, because over this long period, um, a lot of people tried to patent the things that were in Lucasfilm's habitat. Mm -hmm. And so Chip and I did a kind of lucrative side business in expert testimony and shit related to, no, word balloons existed in 1988 mm -hmm. in this product. Uh, no virtual goods existed in this product in 19, no scarce object, you know, uh, virtual economies. You have no idea. I, I've flown around the world, uh, you know, <laughs> and been in the British Bailey to testify on wow. the existence of gambling online before gambling was online, stuff like this. Again, remember I said all that stuff where we were experimenting with everything at once. Yeah. It turns out that makes everything available for everyone to use without getting sued <laughs> because <laughs> we were doing everything. So just one thing. Um, so Alex manages to find a machine, manages to get it shipped out from Virginia or somewhere on the East coast out to, out to, uh, this location in Oakland, gets this thing together. Chip has the source code for all the behaviors related to the game. And, uh, we of course have the binary and the source code, but we can't. The, the, the computation, the compile environment for the Commodore 64 client doesn't exist anymore. Right. Because it was running on Unix machines at Lucasfilm Games. We didn't have a copy of any of that stuff. And it required a piece of hardware. Uh, the, there's a reason Habitat had be built. And the answer is the Commodore 64 had nothing to do with its compilation. Compu computate, uh, uh, sorry, uh, its compilation. Mm hmm it was all done on mini computers and then squirted into the back of the machine through a custom interface. Oh. A custom interface allowed us to do things like hold the processor and look at all the memory. Yeah. Right. right. So this kind of, kind of built into development environment. We, we built a hardware based IDE, uh, before people even used the expression IDE. <laughs> uh, we were, so this is only possible because it was possible to treat it as a peripheral. The conversation for was the client peripheral. Uh, and we'd run stuff on it and we'd stop it. We could single step. We could do a bunch of things that were really important to debugging, none of which you could do with standard development. Um, so anyway, sorry about that side trip, but, uh, so we couldn't rebuild the client. So we were just going to use the binaries we had. We literally had physical copies of the floppy disks and they'd been ripped successfully. Someone had ripped them onto the internet and they all looked good. Mm -hmm. So my job was going to be at the, at the, uh, at the, uh, Hack day was to bring the client up as far as I could, and Chip was going to lead the team to bring the server up. So uh, at the end of the day, two things happened. One was we realized Chip didn't have the most important parts of the server, and that was all of the support code from AOL that we need to run chat rooms and all the things that's built on top of. Mm -hmm. So we have all the behaviors but none of the infrastructure. It turns yeah. out to this day, we still don't have access to that infrastructure. Really? Right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and there have been numerous attempts over the years 
specific people say they have a copy, but they can't give it. Lawyers have gotten in the way on the AOL side because it's AOL now. Hmm. And it's so absurd. It's like, dude, this is all win. Why wouldn't you learn that? Yeah, so yeah. that machine currently sitting at the maid, you know, the doorstop. It's a big doorstop. Um, I managed to get the client working. I wrote a 15-line JavaScript program to simulate being a server because I knew I had all the source code and I had a I had a sample content vector and I hand coded that thing. We worked with the guys. Guys helped me get um, all the all the hardware simulations so that we could simulate the connector. Um, you know, uh, get the binaries into the Commodore 64, but also simulate the connection part for the protocol. Mm-hmm. Uh, I use HTTP or to use a uh, you know use the internet instead of telephone lines, blah, blah, blah. By the end of the day, we had an avatar with no head walking around in an orange. It's like, okay. Wow. We know the front end software works. Of course it works because it's just front end. It's not, not, it has always worked. It's yeah. always been worked. Um, but we know we don't have a back end. And after a while, I said, you know what? I'm between jobs. I've decided that I'm going to rewrite the back end. So we put together the Neo Habitat project, which is an open source project to rebuild the backend. So that was its primary goal uh, to rewrite it. Uh, I chose the language Java because it's the one I know, mm-hmm. not because it's the best choice, but because it's the one I know. And oddly, uh, its object structure is closer, close, pretty close to what Chip tried to mimic when he wrote the original PL1 code. The original PL1 code is not an object-oriented language, but Chip wrote it as if it were. Okay. So every class has its own file. Although in the end, uh, when it pile, compiles on the on the uh, on the Stratus, just turns into one huge text file that all gets compiled together as one big program, right? They're all function calls instead of classes, right. but they behave. So it was easy. The, it, there's a direct line for line for much of the code. Once the object infrastructure stuff's out of the way in Java, if you look at the behaviors, you can do line for line comparisons between the PL1 and the Java code. And he said, yeah, that does the same thing. Uh, so the port was uh, enough of a, a kind of uh, a little bit of grunt work that we could really do parallel development uh, with open source, which is really great. And Steve Steve uh, was the strongest contributor, but there were several others uh, mm-hmm. as well. It got interesting enough when we started realizing. So right now we're using, uh, we at first we used the, uh, the Quantum Link Reloaded because you still had to connect to Quantum Link before you could load Habitat. Right. Yeah, so there was this long process, and it's it's so painful <laughs> to get, I want to play Habitat, and I have to go through like 10 screens and all yeah. these different, and 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 Quantum Link had this protocol where your your hashed password was not under your control, it was stored on your disk, mm-hmm. which meant you had to use the same disk every time, and you couldn't use a backup or anything like that, it would all fail. So there's all this protocol for you know, securing for quantum link, which we're not even going to use because you're literally going to go over here, go to game connection, pick the second screen, go down, choose launch habitat. What we really wanted was a new client, a client wrapper, and that's what you have with Neo Habitat. And we did secure the help of someone whose name is eluding uh, me now. I apologize on behalf of him, uh, who did figure out how to compile a client for us and to put the front end on it. And so uh, this allowed us to put the original Habitat load screen back in uh, and make it so that everything that used to be in Quantum Link 
uh, is now hiding in this Neo Habitat screen. Right behind that screen you're showing there, you type in your name. And it does all the protocol it has to do. And we, we did a shortcut because we, we recompiled, uh, we, we made a special version of uh, Q-Link Q Reloaded specifically to allow us to do a bypass. And right now, the only thing we're using from Q-Link Reloaded is literally the Quantum Link protocol, uh, you know, packet delivery protocol. Hmm. Okay. So we go in, establish packet compatibility, and then pass straight through to Habitat. Um, and in fact, right now, Steve is actually working on removing that entirely. Uh, he's working on a new wrapper for the bridge code uh, that will actually speak the protocol. And if he does that, uh, we will no longer be dependent on Q-Link uh, uh, reloaded at all. Hmm. The idea there was not, not to put uh, anything down on Q-Link or Q-Link reloaded. Those are all awesome, but we just want to focus on uh, the museum experience. So I'm responsible right. for the design of the docent, which is the web experience that shows, gives you text and stuff about uh, background and orientation. So you can use Habitat in a museum context. Because the problem is, is one of the big things we learned is in Commodore 64 days, everyone got their software and read the manual because you didn't know how to use it unless you did. Yeah. Everything about how software works now is different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah. so if you come to Habitat and you just they go, you're completely lost. Yeah. You don't even know you should pick up, have a joystick, pick it up and how to use it. Right. Where the first thing you would have done while you were waiting for that darn thing to load was <laughs> flip through the manual and go, oh, what's this? Oh, what's that? Oh, that sounds interesting. I'm going to go check that out. And so the docent design, which is to run NeoHabitat in an emulator, in a browser, mm -hmm. in a frame, uh, synchronized with a, with a uh, docent service, uh, allows us to try to get a little closer to allowing uh, a walk-up interaction. I, I'm still not happy with it, but it's way better than what we were finding. We literally had walk-up and everyone would go, I don't know what to do. Right. Hmm. Now I'm trying to make the connection with the interview with Steve Sullivan two years ago, and I think, because we spoke a little bit about it before we started the call here, that uh, um, you actually said um, they got support from AOL, but now, Randy, what you said sounded like they were in the way with the... Um... Well, I think when we talked to Steve, he was saying that they were communicating with AOL at the time. Yeah. This is like two years ago, and they were trying uh, to get some help, but maybe that didn't happen, ultimately. Yeah, I have, I have, no, I have no update. Last I heard, there, there, was, uh, there was no progress. Hmm. Alex Handy would be the best person to check with. I did want to share one thing that the effect of this project may not have been in place when Steven spoken to you, spoke to you. And that is Habitat has had a profound effect on American law. Hmm. Really? Okay. Most recently. Uh, so we did this Habitat project and we just barely pulled it off by this, uh, the skin of our teeth, pulling in lots of favors with people we knew. It turns out the rights, had uh, gone from Lucasfilm to uh, Fujitsu Habitat, and that was something that Chip and I had helped facilitate back when Fujitsu wanted to be the first company to do that mm. in Japan, and they were. And uh, as, as, as some people say, Chip and I are famous in Japan. Um, <laughs> uh, but that's mostly because they revere creators over there yeah. uh, quite a bit. And um, the... So we knew people, there were people in Japan who were motivated. Fujitsu actually had the license. 
so that's why Fujitsu's name is on the Neo Habitat mm-hmm. screen because you know basically saying, hey, this is all good. You're never going to make money off of Lucasfilm Habitat. Right. You know, yeah. let's let's forfeit our. You don't even know what to do with this. You own this right, and you have nothing to do with it. <laughs> and uh, but the side effect was so all that tension and that cost time and money for the museum to to secure the legal work to do that. And in the end, we produce something that has maybe a dozen visitors a day. It, it, mm-hmm. it is a museum piece. It is not any of the things people were afraid would happen with fan servers of, of old, of old uh, multi-user software. Like, oh, they're going to deny revenue. It's like, no, you shut it down because it has no revenue. Right. right. It was never going to make you money. It's not going to start making you money all of a sudden. Quite the contrary. Um, <laughs> It, 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 but it does have important roles as uh, historical artifacts. Mm-hmm. We took this, uh, Alex and the lawyer took this to the recent meeting on the copyright exemption for museums. So museums have the right to copy software even in, and, and to circumvent copy protection for museum purposes. But there was this strange thing where you couldn't do that for the server. That the server was not allowed. So, so there had this model that the server would be a local network connection, a LAN. So there, you could do it if it was in a LAN. It's like, no, no, no. This has to be on the internet in order to be useful. And Habitat was used as the case to show both how hard this is and why it's never going to happen again unless we get the exemption and the U.S. government grants the exception. So now because of Habitat, you will start to see development projects of other early network games with front end, back ends, with back ends that are remote on the internet, uh, emerging uh, in the library context, in the context of research in libraries. Wow. Uh, and Habitat was the, re- Neo Habitat was the reference thing. And so whenever the lawyers from the other side said this, they said, uh, no, look here, no, look, here. No, look here. <laughs> it's not what you say. It's not what you think. It's not what you're trying to tell the judge at all. Right. Uh, right. Look at the pain you have to go through. <laughs> <laughs> so you're actually making history a second time, even yeah. in, even if in a different way. Yeah. Hmm. So, so it's been used to defeat a uh, word balloon patent. And uh, it's been used to help change the law about old servers. Mm-hmm. Wow. Copied for museum and research purposes. So I'm, I'm very proud of the work that Alex has done in that regard. Uh, and I do believe if you talk to Alex, you'll find out what next thing he's working on. I'm pretty sure he's got something cooking. I don't think he's in that. Um, you, you keep tempt, uh, mentioning the names we should talk to next. Do you actually know how, to, uh, how, how we can get in touch with them? Sure. Because we would love to get the other sides of the story, yeah, yeah. if it's sure. possible. Uh, Alex Handy would be really good to talk to, especially if you're really interested in computer history, because uh, his museum is computer history from the point of view of games. Hmm. And he's been a champion of multiplayer games as part of that. And uh, a chip, which you mentioned yeah, also. Chip Morningstar, yeah. Yeah, Chip yeah. Morningstar. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so, he has a, a different turn on the story, mm-hmm. uh, although you should know Chip and I have worked together on and off for ever since then. Uh, we have co-founded companies together. Sometimes he works for me, and sometimes I work for him. <laughs> well, as as long as you have the contact data for us, we will we will get in touch yeah. with them. 
Wonderful. So, so what is the state of of NeoHabitat uh, today, as far as a uh, a functional? Because um, this is when when we spoke two years ago about it. Um, it was already in a much more functional version than than Q-Link Reloaded. Q-Link Reloaded, the people connection works. There's a couple of message boards, but the vast majority of functionality isn't there still. Um, and this already two years ago was almost um, completely functional and back to the way it had been in, I, I, I'm not sure when, um, when this is um, being pulled from. You know, like what, uh, what so, year was the, uh, the state that it was in? All right. So we attempted to reconstruct its beta test state, mm -hmm. which is uh, fall 1986, two years before its release, um, mm -hmm. but up until its release. So the database backup probably is 1988. Okay. And we used a database backup to build a new version of that world. Uh, and it's pretty true to it. We did add in um, the street that has some historical significance um, as the operational part of the alpha. So, so, so the beta test. So we had a beta world, and then we had we added some stuff as we got a sheriff's office, and we got a, a real life priest who wanted to take over um, the temple of the Holy Walnut, and so we we've archived that stuff in. Um, there's also some regions that are used for testing. I believe. Stuart Cass has constructed regions, reconstructed the regions that were in the very first demo reel. Uh, so there's there's little chunks of spaces uh, that have been put in there. Not a lot of development in the last two years. Um, it is, I would say, 98% functional plus plus. And that plus plus is, uh, when I was talking about how things are different now, uh, so it actually has functions that the original server did not hmm. and the reasons will follow. So for example, uh, we have an internal messaging system called ESP. You type two colon and an avatar name, and then you can, everything you type goes to them until you send an empty line, put you in a mode for personal communication. And in the original version, your, what you thought, what you were saying to them did not echo locally. Hmm. Uh, so you, you would type something, another person would see it, and then they would respond. That's how it released. Uh, but in practice, if you're going to use that, like when you're developing the thing, to send messages to each other across the space, because you're not in the same space, um, it's not really good. It's not a great design. Um, so one of the things we learned is you should probably tell you what you sent so that you can see the whole conversation on the screen. Right. Um, and so we put that in and we put in some commands, command lines. So the weird thing is someone says, oh, it's got command lines. It's like, well, it didn't originally have command lines, but we put those in to expedite use. Hmm. So for example, there's no join command. You literally had to talk to someone, figure out where they were, plot a route to get to them and walk to them. Mm -hmm. You could use teleports to get rid of a bunch of the walking, but you still had to walk to the teleport and out of the teleport to wherever you were going. All right. Um, that might've been fine. We were charging six cents a minute. <laughs> uh, and but we wanted also, to see the whole world. Club Cree was also much smaller in scale than than Habitat. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so now we have Splash Join or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and these commands can be enabled or disabled. So we can literally there is a command to disable the extended commands. 
uh, so you can see what it was like originally. So we really wanted to still make it available. I'm, I was committed to everything the same as on the day alpha, uh, beta test ended. Mm -hmm. uh, that's still my personal commitment as long as I'm involved in the project. And any extensions are specifically called out as such. And as a result, every any time an extension command is used, it literally displays differently on on the screen. I think it has a, has a special character in front of it. I don't remember what it is. And that lets you know this was an extension command. This was not in the original game. So uh, the reason, the one, there is one major thing that is different, and there is a a huge bug, uh, and that is um, the memory management. You remember I talked about that memory manager, yeah. how much stuff is in memory and stuff. It turns out the server really wants to have a model of what's going on in the user's memory, just mm -hmm. so it can predict whether or not your avatar and its stuff will fit. Right. So when you're going to go into a space, is there enough room for you and your stuff? Because if not, everyone's computer is going to run out of memory and the things that are overflowing is going to break. Yeah. Um, well, the modeling for that was very complex and has not yet successfully been duplicated. So mm -hmm. as a result, uh, regions cannot get quite as crowded as they did because we basically just say we're going to pretend you have to bring all your as if all your stuff laying on the floor when you walk in instead of all these rules we have for if it's hidden we don't have to count the memory till you load it and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so the rules are complicated and not duplicated on the server. So that's why I say 98% plus launch. There's a 2% thing which is a big performance benefit. Um, it would just take a lot of debugging and I think this is another thing Steve's going to take on or at least setting it up so we can actually reasonably uh, debug that because that's a complicated task, especially if we can't change the client very often. All right. It's, it's, it's fascinating. And it, and it gets quite a bit of use. I'm on the, uh, I'm on the Slack server for it. And there, like you said, there's probably a dozen or so logins every day, yeah. which, which is quite a bit for a, for a, a, a system from 1988. Essentially, well, some of those some of those people who are logging in were there mm -hmm. in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Were actually players, yeah. and I find it interesting that you are still so much dedicated um, to to the project. I mean, when when we talked to to other people like Ron Gilbert or David Fox, they were like, "Oh, I don't want to look at the old stuff." To be honest, I want to move <laughs> forward. And, and you are doing the exact opposite. Uh, <laughs> you actually see it from preserving it for a museum and looking at the old stuff and trying to recreate what you did uh, 32 years ago. So, so I, I have my version of that, but it's a little different. And people ask Tell me us. this uh, on occasion, which is, well, what are your plans for the service? And I always say, I have no plans for a service. This is a, this is, this is a, the reason I put the docent in add, you know, wrap it with a dozen is so that people can experience it as best as possible on their own, mm -hmm. even though fundamentally it's a multi-user thing. So I also wanted to get some robots in there. So I said, um, the interface is going to still be, we're going to use for messaging. Uh, we're going to, uh, in terms of the application, to the, you can talk to the server with JSON or you can talk to it with queuing. And so the robots speak JSON to the bridge and it turns it into what it needs to turn into in order to talk to the server. So you can now write JSON robots. My idea there was to simulate 
oddly, is to simulate users in a multi-user <laughs> environment using robots. Um, I know it sounds a little ironic, uh, but you cannot really have the experience they had. Right. Uh, I'm not trying to force that to happen. It's such a piece of awkward software. Right. We've learned so much from it. What's important is it's, it's like visiting. There's a reason I like the Denison. It's like visiting uh, one of those live exhibits in, uh, of, a, of a medieval village mm -hmm. where there are people dressed up as, you know, the thing. And this is candle making. This is taking care of horse poop. This is all these things you did back then. Right. Um, it, you're not really experiencing it. You're, you're coming to understand what's different about it. Mm -hmm. And reason. So I'm dedicated to its restoration, but not as a service. It, it can't be that again. It would make no sense for it to be that again. Right. Uh, so very much like like Ron and 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 those. I I was like, no, I don't I don't want to run another service away. <laughs> uh, there's nothing interesting there. Uh, but seeing the first, you know, that you get coins in your pocket and how we handled that problem in the first case, uh, scarce object. Mm -hmm. like, oh, that's really interesting. I thought those didn't exist until mobile phone software came along and these kinds of things. And then, so anyone that, you know, that produces an interest and curiosity for people to look things up. Uh, so the reason I agreed to this is I would like as many artifacts as possible pointing back to this work. Mm -hmm. uh, it's incredibly important. I know it was. I, uh, it's had profound effects on protecting this kind of work. I literally have a blog post uh, that says how I saved uh, Blizzard a million dollars and they don't even know it. And that was about how I helped defeat the word balloon patent um, because a small company was being sued for using word balloons over avatars. Um, and if they had caved in, you knew Blizzard was next for World of Warcraft, which uses word balloons over avatars. Right. Uh, uh, and we went, no, 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 look here. Here's some stuff from the 1980s that used that. Here's some, here's some more patented stuff in the 1990s that used that. So, right. um, yeah. So I, I'm uh, very excited whenever anyone says I want to talk about this. I think it's important because I it, it doesn't get enough recognition. I don't mean for me. Uh, you know, people normally when they hear about this, just their minds can't absorb it at first. And that's why I wanted to make sure it was out there. Because it was one thing to describe it, it's another thing to use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 kind of captivated me ever since there was a um, – when I got my C64, there was a, a buyer's guide. And on the cover of the buyer's guide, the Commodore buyer's guide, was a picture of a C64 with Habitat running on it. And it was, that wasn't in – that wasn't in the buyer's guide anywhere. Like it didn't, there was no explanation of it. It was just on the cover. And, you know, I was like, what is, what is this? What is this thing that I'm looking at? And, and, you know, I really wanted to know about that. And then, you know, learning about it through Q-Link. And again, I didn't get to spend too much time on it because I think it was eight cents a minute at that point. Yeah. And, you know, being, being younger, you know, I, I think I, I got through a month of that and then my parents were like, yeah, no, we're not doing this anymore because you just cost us $200 or some. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you have no idea how many times I heard that story as the as the uh, system administrator. <laughs> yeah, the uh, for those who are interested in historical stories related to that, uh, I'll point you to uh, the writings that are available at habitatchronicles.com. But also, the lessons of Lucasfilm's Habitat is the paper we wrote in 1990, 
mm-hmm. that kind of summarized all the things we learned, uh, many of which did not get internalized quickly by later game developers, but eventually they did. Um, also, there are some other papers by me, uh, Frank Randall Farmer, and the word habitat. You'll find other lessons, uh, something called habitat anecdotes, mm-hmm. uh, where I talk about people spending $1,000 in a month. Understand <laughs> 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 this. Uh, in fact, one of those people uh, who remain unnamed, uh, one of those $1,000 people uh, was ended up involved with the Neohabitat project at least a little bit. Wow. Uh, and, and so uh, there's that part too, which is just even in terms of not just in terms of the industry um, and other things, um, there's the effects on the individual. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the creating social spaces has always been very rewarding for me. Uh, and to encounter people who say, oh, I used your thing. Yeah. And we did it again later on for Fujitsu. Mm-hmm. Uh, we helped them with Fujitsu Habitat and then brought it back under the name Worlds Away for Cloud Creek. So that was three versions. And, That's right. Yeah. And the platform. So anyone interested in the object model should look at Elko, uh, Chip Morningstar's Elko project. That's what we used as the base. Uh, that's one of the reasons we use Java. Um, because Elko is in Java. It is a re-implementation of the object model uh, Mm -hmm. that we've been refining since Habitat. Chip has been using the same object model for a series of servers and a series of computers. We've had numerous companies who built on this, a mobile gaming company before that, an information company, all using a similar object model. Um, And it seemed fitting that I would use the ninth generation Habitat, you know, uh, architecture, the architecture from the ninth generation of Habitat uh, to build Neo Habitat, uh, to actually put Habitat objects back on top of that architecture. Um, And it it worked very well. Uh, It was really fast. It was only a week from Elko to the very first region up and running. It was really cool. And Steve was a big help and other people who came on the project early. Some of the people who came on the project were people who didn't know Habitat personally, but they knew one of its successors, like uh, Worldplay. They mm. had big world users. Right. And I, I still think it's one of the best implementations of, of a multi-user thing. You know, I've, I've, I've messed around with, with certain things like uh, uh, Second, Second Life is, I believe, uh, one of the big ones. And you know, I, I described when I was trying to describe it to Jörg because he, being in Germany, this wasn't a thing that was really accessible to Europeans at the time. And I said, you know, it's kind of like, it's sort of like an early Second Life, but without all the suck. You know, like it's, it's <laughs> you know, it's just done so much better, and it's so much smoother and easier to use. You know, and 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 and. It just, it's still to this day, you know, the fact that, that a Commodore, an unexpanded Commodore 64 can, can run a multi, you know, a, a, a massively multiplayer online thing without, without, without a hitch and way better than newer machines can run it is still just, just an amazing feat. Thank you. You're too kind. Uh, most people don't know. I actually did some consulting for Second Life. Really? Yeah. Uh, their 2.0 interface, and they started introducing um, uh, contextual verbs. That's my design. A bunch of other things, my design. And it, uh, they hired me very graciously when I was between jobs. Uh, hmm. They said, "Yeah, give us a complete dump of what you think's up with this." And so I told them. 
<laughs> and what was funny is at the time I wrote a thing and I said, I'm very concerned about, um, about your teleport model. Uh, we, we found that not useful, making people walk to teleports and then to teleport somewhere and then have to walk somewhere again. But yeah. you need point to point teleport. And, and they were like, uh, they were very resistant. It's like, you're trying to force the meta. So there's another one of those metaphorical problems. Hmm. You got, you've got a metaphor that is overly constraining your environment. And I said, as it is now between this and the fact that your neighbors can build things that, that drive them, you know, drive you crazy. I have a farm and next to me, it's a porn guy. <laughs> yeah. porn and he's got, you know, he's got signs 50 feet high, a hundred feet high, right up against the wall of my farm. Mm -hmm. I said, here's what I predict. I predict you're going to become a service of islands. I predict 150,000 islands, all with a region between them mm -hmm. so that you don't see anyone else. And I said, point-to-point -point teleport is therefore going to be necessary. And what you'll want is you'll want some kind of mechanism for constraining what comes in, what goes out, and who can wear what. And uh, I wrote that for them before their 2.0 interface came out. Um, and every one of my predictions came true. <laughs> uh, I'm also responsible for the first release of a weapon of mass destruction on second line. Oh. I'm one of those people... Because I understand these architectures so well, I instantly understand them when I come in. Mm -hmm. I see their seams immediately. Like, yeah. I mean, it's like, like metaphorically, I can see between the seams of the polygon. Uh, anyway, oh, you had this thing where you spend money to create a resource, and you can create a resource that does damage. and do infinite damage. It can be transparent. So I made a transparent exploding uh, weapon that would then spawn randomly somewhere else and do it again. <laughs> uh, and and uh, I slaughtered everyone in the Jesse server, which is where the World War II uh, uh, reconstructionists went after World War II online shut down. Oh. Um, yeah, and it's a legend about that. You can read about that online too. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I understand the critique of second line. I think there's a lot of great stuff that was discovered there. I think there was there's a lot of designers hubris in everything that gets built. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and second life definitely had uh, uh, had Corey and Draca and 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 uh, the other founders footprints all you know fingerprints all over them. He was like, "Oh, we're going to the government." He's like, "No, you're not." <laughs> yeah, right. We're going to have islands. Um, and uh, but you know that same that same bias is in Lucasfilm's habitat. Before the version you see here, you'll see there is telephone object. We were originally planning on implementing. I know this sounds so bizarre because we're designing this in 1984. Uh, you need to understand 1984 is so different. Uh, you were going to each be born of the house and it would have a telephone and the telephone would have a number. Mm -hmm. And um, we could have telephone books and all this stuff. And so you, you, you could call someone which would ring in their house. It's so hard to realize how stupid a metaphor that was. This is an example of the, 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 the folly <laughs> of the metaphor. And it was Steve Case who was a, a, a VP of marketing at the time who told us no, guys, you got it wrong. You got it wrong. We have this thing called private messaging PMs. You need mm -hmm. to use private messages. And we originally resisted a little bit. After a while, we went, we most, I think he's right. You need to be able to reach anyone anywhere. You, who wants to play a game where you have to sit home yeah. to hear from your friend? Waiting for the phone to ring. Wait, 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 wait. Something's wrong here. <laughs> and so we couldn't figure out a metaphor. Uh, that made sense. So we made up this ESP. Well, it's just a mental ability you have. The mm -hmm. ESP, ESP. 
who knew just literally by the time this thing shuts down, we're going to start to see the first mobile phones. Right. And all we would have had to do was put a mobile phone in your pocket and we could have kept our metaphor. Yeah. Um, but he was right. I mean, it was just like, there's the, that's what I call it. I call it the tyranny of the metaphor. So we learned it from Habitat that you can be too slavish to a, a physical metaphor. And that was one of the things I shared with Second Life is beware the tyranny of the metaphor. Mm-hmm. Uh, teleport boosts are the result of a tyranny of the metaphor. Teleport boosts are trying to fix a problem. The reason they're so popular in fiction is because it's a real problem. Right. <laughs> right. So why don't we just eliminate the problem instead of putting in the hack job that we have to because we're in a physical world. Hmm. Great Yuri, stories. You, yes. Yes. Yuri, you got anything? No, okay. no, I'm totally impressed. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I, I hear it um, from uh, from you, and um, I'm trying to make the connection from what we heard uh, from Steve two years ago, but I understand there's a lot um, that went on ever since. I'm totally impressed that you were involved in Second Life also, yeah, because that's something I knew and I tried out um, when it was um, when it was hip to to, mm-hmm. to use it, which is also some over 10 years ago already so mm-hmm. it it passed quite fast yeah um yeah but it's still it's still running as a service from what i understood yeah so. it is and it's one of those things that i i you know i i used it because i love i like the idea of it and and the promise that it has so what the, the the shortcomings that you know the the, the suck that i i mostly re, uh, recall is just the fact that none of the um None of the assets are stored locally, so you go into a, a new section right. and you're limited by your network connection because everything has to download and then render and whatnot. So you're right. sitting there waiting and whatnot. Whereas, you know, with other things like uh, like like Minecraft is also, you know, we just recently did a thing with that. Um, that's another MMORPG, but everything is stored locally, so you just walk yeah. into a section and bloop, everything's there. Yeah, so there's a there's so many hybrids. Of course, Habitat everything's on the disk because mm-hmm. uh, there was no way at 300 baud we could send resources. <laughs> yeah. But by the time I got to Worlds Away, uh, Worlds Away started that way. The bulk of the data was on the disk, but they eventually added dynamic loading objects where they would put in placeholder objects. Like a tree would be gray generic tree. Mm-hmm. You know, a tree's going to go there while it's loading the tree. Um, so. It's it's always a fascinating thing, and it, this has become even more the case now with you know level of detail and big announcements from platform companies saying we get to do a magic stuff. You can now keep the resources locally, and it automatically scales. And it's like mm-hmm. wow. Um, and so this is a space where the technology continues to develop. What's mm-hmm. interesting to me is the Habitat server model is still the right model for all of the games today, almost all of the games today, except for the very twitchiest ones. Right. Um, uh, because in, you know, in terms of having an abstract object that you interact with and you interact with it through a constrained interface, let's just say noun verbs for now for sake of simplification, mm-hmm. uh, you can now have the server be the appropriate authority where we've run into trouble is where people have, uh, trusted way too much for the client. And if you look at Lucasfilm's habitat, that's its primary lesson. Mm-hmm. You can't trust the client. Right. Uh, and yet, <laughs> games continue to go, no, we'll trust the client. <laughs> what I find interesting is when I talk to other pioneers, like David Crane, for example, he told me in an interview they had no idea they were making history, something groundbreaking. And you said at the beginning of the interview, you knew 
back then. What you were doing is groundbreaking, mm. and you are writing history. So that's totally different because all the other pioneers we spoke to, they had no idea that this was something nobody else did before. So, uh, yeah. So we, yeah, we knew we were pioneers. We had no idea that we were doing the impossible. Um, and so we're like the, the pioneers like that, which is no one told us you shouldn't. And if anyone knew what we knew, they probably should have. Uh, and that's how we knew we were pioneers because there was no one to tell us not to. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. This project should have never happened. Hmm. It, it, it stretched on for years. Yeah, you can read the history. I, I mean, I've been sharing a lot of uh, insightful stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but to be clear, uh, this game it was two years late, it, at, optimistically. You, part of the reason you saw materials like you did with the habitat on the cover, but don't mention the inside, is because right. you couldn't get it yet. Uh, the, Chip tells the story in his history of us showing it at 1986 at the Palladium in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, and the video you can see with the, with the chaplain in the bottom, people walking around, that is the regions we use from the Palladium demo. It was a live demo. They were really connected. We were really in six different regions. Um, but it would not ship for two years after that. Um, and it looked, you know, we were, we were, we were thinking it was going to ship any day now right. when we did that demo. That demo wasn't, Hey, we're showing you something that's going to be true in two years. It was like, this is going to be there tomorrow. That's yeah. what we're showing you. Mm. And it took two more years. So, uh, it was exp very expensive to build. And I guess right. those buyers guides were like, Oh, we need something for the cover. Oh, we have still have the yeah. material from two years ago. Let's slap it on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, on. It, looks, it looks interesting enough. There's a famous full-page ad they took out, I don't remember where, which has the Habitat cover screen logo, uh, uh, the, the blue with the skyline, mm -hmm. uh, but on, on white, so it doesn't cost a lot to run the ink. And it says, coming to Quantum Link. Yeah. And that's it, this, this fall or something. And it's 1986. Yeah, right. Uh, and so I just want to be absolutely clear that despite this thing being amazing, it's a miracle in several ways and one is that it didn't get killed all along that path yeah uh and chip talks a lot more about that in his yeah. post on how to yeah. yeah here it is yeah. it's, it's 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 86 87 the actual buyer's guide and it's yeah right on the cover yeah, I know that one. yep yep and there's nothing in the book and this is pre-internet so you know 10 year old me is looking at this and being like like what is this you know it's lucasfilm's habitat that looks awesome but no idea yeah. what it is i can't just look it up anywhere yeah, it doesn't exist yet. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, so that buyer's guide, I, I know that picture. The mm -hmm. one behind you, I think, is the same picture, but it's been modified to be legal. Yeah. Um, so that picture was never possible in Habitat. Really? Uh, if you know anything about Commodore 64 coloring, <laughs> you can't make that Yeah. and have all the properties we're showing. Right. Uh, and so we've changed it. If you look at the one on Neo Habitat, we changed it to be compliant yeah. uh, with the rules of rendering. Mm -hmm. uh, and the rules of rendering are very clear. Only background objects get uh, get the fancy colors, and they have to fit on character boundaries. Right. Right. Wonderful. Foreground objects must be in one of the basic three bit pairs, black, blue, or re reassignable pink. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so if it's in the foreground, it's going to be made of those, unless... It's not ever moving, in which case it can be treated as a background object. It's complicated, but but uh, 
Uh, in fact, it, there's a bug. Uh, if you can set, I believe we're implementing, we, we allow you to do it. Uh, we've got a tool, the God tool lets you set arbitrary color settings. You can set yourself to be quote transparent. It's not transparent. What it is, you just see the color map as right. your color. Um, as you're walking around. It's ugly as hell, and there are old pictures of it, and every time I saw those photos of Club Caribe people, that that someone had released a paint can in Club Caribe that did that, it just really pissed me off. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's impressive that you still know all those technical details. You never forgot. Well, no, in this case, uh, in this case I got reminded, of course, because we just recently brought it back. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, I lived those things. I mean, I lived that project for more than three years hmm. uh, when I was at the game, day and night. Yeah. Um, uh, Chip tells a story, this thing about uh, how we delivered, you know, how Ron Gilbert uh, took him on, quote, a low altitude flight to the airport in his car <laughs> to deliver a disc one night so that we could meet a deadline. Um, wow. uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. There, there was the day that almost killed everybody. All, all, all the all the names you know. Ron Gilbert and Morningstar could have bit it when we were trying to deliver a disc to me. Wow. Because wow. um, back then, it was sending a disc on an airplane was higher bandwidth than sending it over the phone. Mm -hmm. I think it still is. You can sending sending like a USB drive. But physically, someplace is bet is is higher bandwidth than sending it over the internet. Yeah, but the floppy disk that Habitat fits on now, literally, I was handing out cards when we were working on the Neo Habitat project, trying to recruit people into the project, mm -hmm. where I had a pixel for every byte mm -hmm. on on a uh, uh, hundred and fifty pixels per inch business card, and it didn't even take up a quarter of the card. Yeah, it's like there's almost no data. The whole thing adds up to less than. Uh, between the disk and the code adds up to less than 200k. Yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. The disk is 160k. Oh, 160. So it's 100. Yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah. It's about 200k. That's mm -hmm. like 190 something. Yeah. That's it. That's all of it. And then <laughs> what gets delivered across the network is not any behavior, not any sound, not any uh, uh, any rendering. It's just literally commands like you know, pick up the box and put down the box and close the box. Right. Now, now this the service is is well the the, the exhibit really is is functional, uh -huh. and you can get onto it with an actual original C sixty four. Is there any other way to can you get onto it with a, with a PC or a Mac or something? Oh yeah, uh, so it it uh, the Vice sixty four emulator. Uh, so if you go to neohabitat.org, you can get it. You can either go to the GitHub and get the stuff, or you can get the distribution and run it on your own on Vice, or you can go directly to the web browser and just run it all in the web browser, which is nice because you get the Docent experience. Yeah, I highly recommend that. If you want to play with it, I recommend the Docent experience because it'll give it'll tell you the things that you have to read <laughs> to understand what's going on. <laughs> um, put it right on the screen. Um, you, but yeah, if you uh, go to the GitHub, you can. The repository. You can see the instructions for actually running on a on a Commodore sixty four. Mm. Wow! It's a very narrow environment. Yeah. Uh, very clear. Uh, for example, the the there are so many embarrassing things about that old stuff. <laughs> uh, one is it only works 
with a fully emulated or full uh, compatible uh, 1541 drive mm -hmm. and only one drive in the chain. Yep. There's more than one drive in the chain. These are the things we learned is we couldn't figure out why we weren't able to run it. It's like, oh, we had too many drives in the chain. Yeah. And like <laughs> so there's yeah. a long set of constraints. Uh, I'm sure your, your, your hardcore Commodore 64 hackers are already used to them. But even those who are used to them still needs the checklist. It's like, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I mean that is true. I mean that is true. I use a fast loader cartridge. I have two drives connected, so mm -hmm. I can, I have network connected, so I can yeah. transfer D64 files back and forth within 40 right. seconds. So my C64 setup is modi modified like nothing. Yeah. You know. Like so, um, of course, mm -hmm. of course. Yeah. yeah so so. Um, it was literally the release day, the day we opened Neo Habitat, that we had our first successful uh, Commodore 64 uh, direct connection to wow. the server. And we were very happy that that happened. Original software. Um, yeah. You can use the original software. If you instead use the Neo Habitat, if you download that package and, and run it, it's certainly better than having to do the Commodore, the Swift to swap to the Q-Link disk and all that other stuff. Uh, it also has that, if you look uh, on that Neo Habitat screen, you push it for screen, there's literally an option to press an F key to let you talk to your modem. Yeah. Um, so we've got everything in there. Highly recommend that approach. I do not recommend coming in. We do support uh, coming in through the Quantum Link reloaded path. We do not recommend it. It's so much work. And if something goes wrong, you just wasted like five minutes. Yeah. And... Uh, and things go wrong. So it's like, if you're gonna go wrong, you just want to type your name, watch, push the button and say, oh, why didn't it work? Uh, right. You only did about 30 seconds instead of wasting <laughs> five or 10 minutes. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Yeah. So yeah, I, I suggest burning a new Neo Habitat A-side. Uh, Habitat A-side. Mm -hmm. Great, great. Very awesome. I'm sorry, burning is the wrong terminology. <laughs> now you make now you make me interested in uh, talking to the other guys you mentioned. Well, yeah, and and, and we got to get you on the thing so you can you can mess around with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um I I do have modems for my C sixty four wireless modems, so I guess I can do it yes, on a real can. machine. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, you can. I, that's actually a good question. Um, would it, it work it, on a on a Paul machine, or would I would I have to um, expect consequences? Because you know we are fifty hearts Paul. Hmm. Oh yeah, no, we the first person to make it through was German. Oh, okay, okay, okay. The first person to successfully connect using Commodore sixty four was in Germany. Okay, so the because I I know on C sixty four there are games that crash. Mm -hmm. Because they are written for different timings of the machines, um, but that's good to know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's all I know. I, I, uh, I until this, until I had heard that, I didn't know. But I literally, so it's, uh, that's all recorded. The good news is, if you look at the history of the Neo Habitat project, if you go to the maid, uh, you will find links to photos that show the first connection and. Mm -hmm. Um, it's mentioned on their opening day. So, yeah, it was a big opening day. Uh, mm. We went in, and then there was someone from German logged in with a real Commodore 64. It's like, <laughs> that's that's actually that's actually an interesting comment you made because I asked the exact question Chris Crick uh, when I when I interviewed him, who was the sound manager of Epics, 
I said, why did you never fix the too slow mu music in the summer games and California games um, um, software release for Europe? And he said, because they didn't know. They didn't know there right. was a difference. So you spoke with Chris Spring? Yeah, I, I, I spoke. You know with he was our sound. You know he was our music guy for Habitat, right? Okay. I, I know. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. It took me <laughs> 10 years to track him down. I haven't, I haven't spoken with him since. We got the first pioneering award, so uh, oh. the the first Penguin Award. So, so cool. uh, but 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 I have him on LinkedIn. I can put you in touch with him if you like. Sure, I would like that very much. Thank you. Sure, sure. <laughs> it, yeah, it he had to work with my sound editor him. to make music, so he was yeah. he's my champion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we 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 don't give up so fast. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, people, so yeah. he did something amazing. We needed uh, our region transition music. We spend a lot of time on black queens when you go from place to place. Uh, Chris Grieg uh, composed a sound. Uh, it's also I think he did the same thing for the cover music um, with three tracks that are playing that are relatively primed. So it would have a, a long repeat period. You wouldn't hear the repeat uh, because the melody would not repeat until, you know, three times five times seven, you know, tracks or right. uh, placers, um, which was which was really cool because he had very little space and he managed to get a very complex, uh, you know, and we it's arbitrarily long how might, long it might be sitting to disk to get those resources. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Always impressed me. I thought he was great. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's very he's very skilled. That's true. That's that was true. another thing about the original '64 version, which is that that again, there's music playing while it loads, and and for '86, that was something that didn't happen very often. You know, yeah. a lot of times when things were loading, you just sat there in silence, you know, staring at a black screen or something. Every time you turn around, there's something crazy hmm. about what that application, what Habitat is doing. Like it's networking while people are walking. It's networking. It's waiting for a reply while other people are arriving. It's mm -hmm. you know, it's like what? What? It yeah. is it it is computer science. Yeah. Kind of crammed into a tiny little brain. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, I, I I'm just amazed by it. I, I don't know that I've ever written anything as sophisticated. And I think that's true for a lot of developers. If you talk to people who developed back in the you know, I, I look up to the same way you guys are talking about this work. I talk about the work uh, when people wrote games for 4K uh, and 256-byte computers, like right. back in the days of uh, uh, Atari VCS or 2600. It had so many different names back in the day. It's like, oh, yeah, we had 256 bytes of RAM. Mm -hmm. That's all we had. It's like, what? How can you do anything? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Yep. That's my that's my heap. I mean, that's my stack. <laughs> I got stack. That's how deep I can go. That's that's right. Just what? Right, right. <laughs> well, if you consider that the VCS was a pong machine, and yeah. David Crane managed to make something else with it, you know, <laughs> so yeah, I, yeah so those people amazed me. It's like, oh yeah, we don't have we didn't have any renderers. We we did all the scan lines ourselves. It's like what? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I actually three years ago I was invited and uh, spent a week with Yes Tawakura, who was the lead engineer at Commodore Japan. So I got first-hand information how how the C64 was put together on a hardware level. 
so that was quite interesting hmm. um uh, spending time with the japanese um engineers from commodore yeah cool yeah yeah so so where can people go to to find out more about what what is happening with neo habitat and to use the system and all that everything you get to everything from neohabitat.org you get uh that has a little video showing the original uh promotional i highly recommend just watching that it's eight minutes long it tries to explain virtual worlds before we know what virtual worlds are um the uh it has got links directly to github so if you're an engineer you can go check out what's up um you know what to do um <laughs> it just you know what to do if you know what that is you know what to do yeah. um uh and there are links directly to play it immediately uh, either through a download of a package, which includes Spice and everything, you can run it on your machine, or you can go directly to the web page version and connect directly uh, with any decent PC or Mac. Uh, or, I haven't tried it on Linux, but it should, I don't know. If the, if the, if the emulator works there, it works. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Uh, not, nominally, it works on smartphones, but uh, the problem is you can't issue the keys you need. So yeah. I literally did bring the screen up and then go, I can't do anything. Okay. I know, yeah, I know. Yeah. We had we had the same problem when we put up our disk magazine in an in a vice JavaScript emulator on the web page. It wouldn't it wouldn't work on a mobile phone. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We had the same uh, issue. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like, well, I would love to demonstrate it on a mobile phone, but it's just so when you ask about that ninety nine percent, this is like one of the ones it's like I Kind of oh. have a wish that the Android phone, you can put a USB adapter and plug a keyboard into it. Or yeah, keyboard. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not in there for that. That's why I didn't do the Commodore test. I like let people who have time and interest <laughs> hack away, want to hack away to do that. Yeah, great. Uh, so I wanted to thank everyone uh, who contributed to the project. Who might hear this for all your contributions. Yeah. Um, uh, I might have led the project, but uh, none of it would have happened without all the volunteers in the project, and oh, including nice. some uh, amazing people who just came in. And the only thing they did was work on populating the regions and put mm -hmm. the stuff in there. All of it. It was great because there were just lots of things to do uh, and a lot of people to bring it together. Uh, and I also want to kind of celebrate people who've gone away. There's a, uh, this is an old program. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, not everyone who used it or contributed to it has survived. So, um, it's, uh, to me, I really appreciate being interviewed, uh, about this legacy, uh, before those of us who know all the details or a lot of the details can share the story. So I really appreciate it. Yeah. We, we always try to get all sides of, of a story. That's our mm -hmm. goal. That's what we're doing since 20 years, yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah. And we will put links to everything. Uh, where people can find it and all that in the podcast description and probably right. on the screen right there-ish or somewhere <laughs> down there so right. that people can, can yeah. go to that real easily and find it. Yeah, right. Well, I'm, glad, I'm glad you guys got me, so thank you so much. Uh, well, yeah, we're, we're, we're glad we did. Thank you for sitting with us and, and, and hanging out and telling us all about this because, again, this is one of those things that I think you know more attention needs to be focused on because – uh, it's a it's a huge piece of of computing history in general, but also C sixty four history and and you know that that entire kind of golden age of of just the beginning of the online 
uh, experience and everything. You know, it's it's a it's it's a it's a major and a, and a huge point of my childhood as, as well because I enjoyed that for a month before I got kicked yeah. off. Yeah, <laughs> you are you aren't the only kid who got <laughs> yeah. to, to burn too much money on habitat. But but now but now you can tell your family you can tell your family H A that mm -hmm. see to what it led. Now yes. I spoke to one of the creators. Exactly. Nobody yeah. can take me that. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> That's right. one in the lifetime experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thanks again for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Thank you. We will keep podcast. in touch. I will email you. Yeah. <laughs> bye bye. Okay. We'll, bye bye. Yeah. Right. Thanks. <clears throat> so that was yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't know why I'm talking like that. <clears throat> that was Randy, Randy Farmer. Yes, that was Randy Farmer. Um, we're going to put links to everything he talked about down in the thing below. And I, again, I, I encourage people to check out Neo Habitat because it is cool and it is, it is active. There's people on it. You, you can go on to the, I'm on the, the, the Slack channel for it and you see when people log in and out and it's, it's, there's always somebody floating around on there. It's actually really cool. Nice. Nice. It's, it's like, like I explained, like I, like I described it to your, it's like second life but mm. without all the suck. <laughs> Which so. he worked on also. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, you know where to find us. Uh, links everything Single. to the podcast description. Yep, you're probably you're already watching it. And blah 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 blah. Well, who knows? Who knows? Yes. But we still should mention SceneWorld.org. Yes. And if you want to yell at us or say anything to us, it's podcast at SceneWorld.org. Nice. And yeah. So until okay. next time. Bye-bye. Beautiful.